it all started kind of, uh, kind of suddenly, without much warning. There were these shepherds that were eating breakfast outside of a small town in Turkey when they were surprised to see a lone sheep go jumping off a cliff near their village. And it fell to its death. They were even more stunned, however, when the rest of the nearly 1,500 sheep in their combined flocks followed the sheep off the cliff. And they counted it up, and when it was all over, the local newspaper in Aksam, Turkey, reported that nearly 450 of the sheep had died and perished in a billowy white pile. See, those that had jumped in the middle and the end of the herd were kind of saved because as the pile became higher and higher and the fall was more cushioned, they didn't die. So I guess the note is if, like, you're, if you're into herd mentality, be a late adopter, okay? You have more chance of surviving. But the estimated loss to the families in this area was almost $100,000. I mean, this is a tragedy when, you know, when the average person makes about $2,700 annually in this town. And, and, and they, were, they were interviewing people when this happened. It's, you know, there's nothing we can do. They're all wasted. Um, it was remembered like 26 families whose sheep were grazing together in this herd. Okay? And it's a sad story, but it illustrates a point. And, and I mean, this, this whole thing, I mean, it could be called nothing short of a case of mass suicide. And that bad joke is for you, Brad, and for you, David, Feel free to unleash it on unsuspecting people all week long, all right? But, and it's terrible, isn't it? I know. But the point of it is, is that it, it is both, it illustrates a really important point to me. It is both an honoring and a very humbling thing to be called the sheep of God's hand, okay? Because sheep are really vulnerable animals, but often their greatest enemy is themselves, Okay? They don't have any natural defenses of their own. They have very limited eyesight. For them, there is safety in numbers. And sheep have a flock mentality. They have a herd mentality. They prefer to hang out in groups and sometimes follow one another into trouble, sometimes even straight off a cliff. And so if you start making the associations, and everybody in Jesus' day would have been able to, since shepherding was a primary occupation in their culture, you probably didn't want to be associated with something that was often vulnerable, clueless, short-sighted, and sometimes critically stubborn. But, spiritually, there we all are sometimes. Lacking sight to determine our course and our direction in life. We find ourselves vulnerable to things that come from the outside, but even more vulnerable to our own deficiencies from within sometimes. And we follow the crowd, even when the crowd is going nowhere. Like it or not, we really do fit the metaphor of the sheep sometimes. And part of, our part of our understanding who Jesus is and what he is about is directly tied to our awareness and our own admission of need for him. And that's rooted in our identity, in our identity and it requires his satisfaction. So when Jesus begins this analogy of being the gate for the sheep, it's right on the heels of this narrative about him healing the man born blind. And as we talked about last week, the major thrust of Jesus' statement about being the light of the world is that if you realize you're in darkness, he is a refreshing and transforming beacon of clarity for your life. But if you've been making a pretense of being able to figure this out on your own and being able to see on your own, then the light and the clarity that it provides 
is going to be something threatening and uncomfortable. And that is exactly the scene that we see playing out before Jesus. This man who was born blind, this outcast where his physical condition in life is equated with his spiritual value, has had this experience and the clarity of not just, more even than just seeing Jesus in person, but receiving clarity about his own purpose and value in life, it was so freeing for him. But then the religious leaders of the day who have been trying their hardest to discount the value of that healing that he has received in order to hold the line on their concepts of righteousness, this act that is outside of their carefully constructed belief pattern is threatening. And Jesus is going to direct the metaphor of the sheep and the gate and the shepherd directly toward the religious leaders, and they would understand this very, very well. It's, it, 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 it is full of meaning for them because of the prevalence of shepherding and the reference that it creates from the mouths of Israel's greatest prophets, Moses, David, Isaiah, Ezekiel, many, many, many others, have either embodied or spoken about this idea of spiritual sheep and the shepherds that lead them all throughout the Old Testament. And they have made it a large part of their understanding of the character of God. Even today, I mean, the, the, one of the Psalms that we know the best is, the Lord is my shepherd. This is so interwoven into their understanding so that when he speaks, there, isn't a lot of, there is not a lot of wondering about what he means. And yet they are confused. They're not confused because they don't, they're not confused because they don't understand the metaphor. They are confused because the metaphor is exceptionally challenging for them. See, shepherding today is quite a bit different now than it was in Jesus' day or in Jesus' location. For starters, most of the sheep that are around here are bred for consumption. They're bred for meat, right? But in Palestine, both then and even primarily now in many parts of Palestine, sheep are bred for wool. You don't eat your sheep. You develop a long-term relationship with your sheep. And out of it, you know, and so you aren't fatting them up for the inevitable slaughter. They kind of become part of the extended family a little bit, right? They're more, than your, they're more than just your livelihood. You actually enter into kind of a covenant relationship with them, frankly, because they are sheep. And they have all the qualities that we just described. And so out of this relationship came a lifestyle of shepherding that Jesus and those around him know well. Many of the biblical shepherds came from villages out along the edges of the wilderness, it's good sheep country. There's all these rolling hills surrounded by these large, broad valleys. And these shepherds would farm around their villages and then take their sheep out to the nearby land where it couldn't be farmed because of the terrain. And while the sheep were in town during the cold seasons, it was often common for the families of the town to have a big communal sheep pen that was well secured and commonly guarded. And so when you see Jesus talking in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 10 about the guardsman opening the gate and the shepherd leading his sheep out of the mix, that image of the communal sheep pen is what would be evoked among the listeners of his time. But that changes in the summer months when the sheep would go out ranging for food. At night, instead of making a return to the safety of the village, the shepherds would put their flocks in an enclosure out in the wilderness. And that could look like a lot of different things. Sometimes that would be like a natural hollow in the rocky hills with a single entrance. Or maybe a makeshift wall of stones or rocks. Or even just kind of a thatched kind of construct that would encircle an area with a single opening. 
in any instance, it was the shepherd that would lay across the opening of the shelter, acting as the gate to protect the sheep and to prevent them from ranging at night or to prevent something from getting in. See, in the most literal sense, the shepherd was the door. And it's most likely that image that Jesus is referring to when he describes himself in verse 7 as the gate or the door to the sheepfold. And see, that's important to remember because otherwise it's really hard for us to follow all of these images that Jesus is creating here, trying to separate, separate out shepherds and gates and guardsmen and the like. And to be honest, I think it's kind of fruitless for us to try and assign special meaning to each character here because that's not really what Jesus is doing. See, he's using this illustration as a parable. And like all parables, Jesus' intent in telling it is not to, is not to like set the stage with all types of little itty-bitty different nuance. His, his, his intent in telling it is to evoke primal reaction. What is the first thing that you think of? What is the first thing that you associate? Okay, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to evoke that primal reaction in his listeners in order to aid in his teaching. For Jesus, there's really only two characters in this story. He, the authentic shepherd, and the religious leaders of the day, who by their actions toward the sheep, in this case the man who's born blind, they are proven to be the false shepherds. So keeping Jesus' words in that context can solve a lot of the questions that we might have about the images that are presented in this passage. At any rate, we can't separate the image of the gate and the shepherd, because the image that Jesus is evoking doesn't separate them either. We have to think of Jesus' claim to be the gate in the greater context of being the good shepherd. And Daniel's going to be delving more into that idea with us next week of, of what Jesus' statement about I am the good shepherd is all about. But realize that, that Jesus as the gate isn't describing an object with properties. That whole image is flowing out of the protective relationship of shepherd to sheep. So for Jesus to say, I am the gate, means that he is calling on two specific properties of the shepherd in relationship, in the relationship of shepherding his sheep, okay? Access and security. The shepherd is the gate determines who can get to the sheep and who doesn't. He sticks himself in the entrance as an insurance policy. If harm is going to come to the sheep, it has to get through him first. Anything that's trying to override Jesus' access to us or our access to him is a threat and should be treated as such. Because if it's not coming through the gate, if it's coming over the sides, it does not have your best interest in mind. That's pretty simple, right? Okay. Jesus sets himself up as a shield and protector for not just the now healed blind man, but for anyone who is willing to proclaim their need for God the Father. And the religious leaders' attempts to go through Moses instead of Jesus expose them for what they are not. They are not the authentic shepherds that they claim to be. And that's really what he's highlighting there. As he's saying, instead of, instead of looking at me as the fulfillment and the revelation of the Father, you keep going back to Moses to try and circumvent me. You're proving to me that you're not coming through the gate. You're not coming through me. You're coming in from the outside. You're leading these people astray. But see, there's more to it than that. 
the gate also determines what the sheep have access to as well. Jesus alone provides access to the Father for all of humankind. He and no other. And see, that is an incredibly exclusive statement. And we need to realize that it is, okay? Because I can believe it, I believe that that can offend our culture just as much as it was offensive in his culture of the day. You know, the leaders of the day were purporting that Jesus and the law of Moses were mutually exclusive things, and you could find salvation outside of him in the tenets of Judaism. Okay? And so for Jesus to say this is not politically correct or even religiously correct speak. And it's not now. Even in our culture, when I see bumper stickers with coexist written in all of the symbols of the world slapped on Priuses that were cutting me off in traffic, um, as, you know, as I pass by big billboards that talk about you know, like the, 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 the universalist Baha'i faith on the Pat Bay Highway on the way up to Sydney, right? You've seen that, right? Okay? Like basically every time I go to pick, every week when I go to pick Reagan up for community class, I'm, I'm passing that sign that's like, it's all good, you know? And Jesus is going to, I mean, really, Jesus is going to make the statement. It's not. It's not. It's not all good. See, to speak of Jesus as the exclusive representative of God in our current culture is frankly viewed as old-fashioned, closed-minded, and even offensive. And if we're going to claim that, we have to claim it in the face of that stereotype. We need to realize that's exactly what we're doing. And we have to claim it nonetheless. We can't, we can't waffle on that. We can't be wishy-washy. We can't step out there and say it and then be like, okay, I'm sorry, I was just kidding. Okay, it, it doesn't work that way. And it raises questions of, of culture and knowledge and the nature of universal judgment and countless other things. I mean, how are we supposed to just believe it? And I don't want to rabbit trail us off into a huge philosophical discussion. I just want us to realize that when Jesus asks me to understand him as the gate, not a gate, the gate, he is asking a lot and he knows it. This was not an accident on Jesus' part. He knows it. And at the same time, I want us to realize that that exclusive claim by Jesus does not make him an exclusive shepherd. And here's what I mean by that. His promise is actually really broad. Okay, like I was talking about with the kids. He does not, he does not throw all these conditions and all of these things. On, he just says, if you come through me, you have access to the Father. That is actually really wide open. If you're willing to go through me, the promise of access and security is yours. The net is cast actually rather wide. Too wide, in fact, for the Pharisees that he's talking to. It is the most unifyingly exclusive claim in history, I think. The gate per se, is wide open to you while at the same time being closed off to the things that would steal and kill and destroy you. And it's open to you, and that means it's also open to everybody else. And so while there is only 
one way that this works, it works for everybody. It is at the same time very exclusive and at the same time very wide open. And I'm sad to say that there are times that I've heard this passage preached to prop up or self-justify one church group against all others in the matter of faithfulness to Christ or even worse, faithfulness to the Christian practice. And I cannot say enough about how much this passage is not about leading you or I to the practice of trying to identify who the thieves and robbers in our midst are or the other sheep that are not of the fold are around us. That is not what this passage is about. That is not. Anyone worthy of the name Christian at least has the conviction that their tradition or congregation is fully allied with Jesus in his work of bringing salvation to the world. Yeah? That, I mean, that makes sense, right? But we also have to deal with the realization that there are a multitude of other congregations and traditions that don't look like we do, but they have the exact same conviction that they are fully allied with Christ in doing that work. And so we have to decide whether Jesus merely represents unity or division, or perhaps he represents this wonderful paradox of both. See, he desires that all be one in him and yet separate from the world. The gate is wide open and yet closed off at the same time. If Jesus was referring to himself as an inanimate object, this would not make any sense. But if the gate's also the shepherd, then the shepherd knows his own. And the shepherd can make claims to say, I am the gate, but I already know who all my sheep are. See, the point is, is if the shepherd knows his own, he does not need the nearsighted sheep who realize that they are blind without him to make those calls for him. He wants the sheep to trust the shepherd and trust the gate and feel free to come into the presence of God and worship and go out in the presence of God in, into their world, confident and secure in the access to the Father through him. That's what the point of this passage is. Jesus' claim to be the only gate is always going to challenge us with what gets kept out that we want to be in and who gets let in that we might be tempted to think ought to stay out. And again, that's why we're the sheep in this story. Judgment and perception is not our strong suit, and so we leave that to the shepherd, to the gate. Because we're the sheep. And in order to frame all this exclusivity and unity and promise and make that all right in our thinking, I think we need to fix our gaze on the point of Jesus being the gate. What is the purpose of him being the gate? This is not an arbitrary role or identity that he's assigned to himself. It's not even for his well-being. Instead, for our benefit, he has a specific goal in mind in being the one who offers access and secures our hearts. Look at the words again in verse 9 and 10 of John 10. I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for. They will freely go in and out, and they will find sustenance for their souls. A thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so they can have a real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Abundant life. 
life to the full. I have heard it phrased so many different ways. But any of those ways, it is so familiar to me sometimes that I throw it around almost without thinking. Of course we know that Jesus came to give us abundant life, right? But here's the question, what is it? What is abundant life? What does this more and better life than I ever dreamed of actually look like? It's a hard question. And I think that's why it's tied to why Jesus needs to be the gate as part of being the shepherd. See, everybody around us is looking for more and better life. I haven't met a person. I don't care what their spiritual background is. I haven't met a person where I would ask them, Are, would you like the idea of more and better life? And they were like, no, I think I'm more in the interest of less than stupid life. That, that, that's really kind of where I'm going for, honestly. That, that's kind of what I'm shooting for. I would like to look back on it all and be like, that was worthless. That'd be a great idea. I've never met anybody that does that. Everybody's looking for more better life. Everybody is. And they're looking in all kinds of places and nobody's finding it. And like sheep without a shepherd, we're wandering in groups here and there, following the crowd, even when the crowd is going nowhere. Looking for the sustenance and the security that our soul needs. And nobody finds it. So we create philosophies like, well, one belief's as good as another. That may be true for you, but it's not for me. I think we're all going in the same direction anyway. I hear this stuff floating around in our culture all the time. Because nobody's finding the more and better life. Nobody can be like, here it is. I found it. I can define it. Okay? And sometimes that even moves over into those of us that have religious understanding and religious knowledge that just like the Pharisees of the day, we're finding ourselves as puzzled by this question as anybody else's. What does more better life look like now? And I think maybe sometimes that when we get in that trap, then even just going to church or believing in the tenets of Christianity just becomes another form of herd mentality, just kind of following the crowd, wherever the crowd is going, the Christian crowd, and I don't even know where they're going. We all like sheep have gone astray, right? And yet into the middle of this steps Jesus with this really outrageous promise for you and me. And he says this, I can not only show you what this more and better life looks like, I can actually bestow it on you. I can't, I'm, I'm not even just going to show you a vision of what it looks like. I'm actually going to put it inside you by my Holy Spirit to start transforming you so you can actually start living the more better life. But you've got to do things my way, and my way may not make a lot of sense to you because it doesn't make a lot of sense to bless the people that act as your enemies rather than fighting back at them. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to let go of your material things instead of trying to hold on to them tightly. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to, in essence, give control of your life over to something besides yourself in pursuit of a better life. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So why do it? Because in the claim of Jesus as the gate, we find the two deepest longings of our hearts satisfied the longing to have a life that is completely filled and consumed with god's presence by the holy spirit 
We long for that, and sometimes we don't even know what it is, but we long for it. And having a heart that is filled up with his presence and is in contact with his presence and consumed by his presence is the deepest longing of our soul. And we find that fulfilled in the idea of Jesus as the gate giving us access to God the Father. Through me, you have the access. You're not searching for the access anymore. You have it. You own it. It's yours. And we have the confidence of life. That's the other thing that we so desperately desire is to have confidence in our lives. To know. To be secure in our hearts. That we can come and go in our lives with the security of the direction that he provides. Jesus is the gate to true freedom because he's the only one that can truly not just display that kind of life for us so that we can see what it looks like in looking at how Jesus lived his life, but he's the only one who can actually give that life. And by definition, if that is where it is found in him, then it's not going to be found outside of him. But to everyone who is willing, that freedom is already there. You don't have to go hunting. You don't have to do 15 push-ups or the chicken dance to get into it. It's already there. Church, today we are being called to embrace the great promise of Jesus. Through him, you have unlimited access to the Father's love. Something that you can't find anywhere else. That love empowers you to a life that is better than you have ever known because it is available to you. It is also a challenge to us, though, because just as we don't deserve it, there are all kinds of other people out there that don't deserve it around us, and they will be welcomed through the gate as well if they come. And I think that's why the Pharisees had such trouble understanding Jesus' simple words in John chapter 10, verse 6. It wasn't that they couldn't grasp the metaphor is that they could not wrap their heads around the idea that access could be for anybody and still be selective. The gate is narrow, but he's not narrow-minded. And even as we embrace the promise of eternal life, we embrace it with the tension of letting Jesus be Jesus. If he's the gate, that also means I don't get to define what the gate is anymore because the gate is the living Son of God. He decides. He will close off what he closes off. He will let in what he chooses. In a light of a life filled with the Spirit, this will become a freeing thing for us instead of a restrictive thing for us. But if we're about determining the gate, then we will find that it is a very restrictive, very difficult Christianity that we are trying to live. And so how will we respond today? What I hope is, is that we will take joy in being the sheep. Frail we are, uncertain, short-sighted, often our own worst enemies sometimes. But we have one who watches over us, who leads us out and who brings us in in confidence and security who gives us the access to God that we crave and the peace of our hearts that we so desperately long for. Maybe you need to respond today by accepting Jesus' lordship. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe it's time to take him on on that. 
Maybe God is challenging you, even as someone who follows him, to accept that the things you might want to chase after are nothing but thieves and robbers. And that you need him to name them as such and remove them from your care. Maybe you need to accept someone else as a sheep of God's hand today. Maybe you have anger or you have hurt or you have bitterness in your heart that you need to let go of so that you can embrace the abundant life for yourself and for that person too because they have the right to abundant life just as much as you do. Whatever you need to do to respond today, I pray that as we take some time and worship now and we come to the table today, that you will encounter the risen Jesus and let him speak to you today. Let him be the gate that lets you access the wonder of our Father God. Let him be the everlasting gate for your soul today, drawing you to where the Father is.